Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're going to be looking at the Bible all over the place this morning. I just want to warn you, God has got a lot on my heart to share. And so I probably have seven messages this morning, but we're going to cram them into one. So, you know, it started when I was in seminary. Uh, the struggle to truly understand what the Bible had to say about God's grace. You know, I had grown up in a Christian home. I was saved when I was eight years old. I knew God's word and what he said about our sinfulness. And I was converted at the age of eight and I knew that I was a sinner and I knew that I needed Jesus Christ in my life. I knew all those things. But it was when I started understanding systematic theology and studying the original languages and and reading church history that the Lord used these things to awaken to me a painful truth about himself. You see, I had grown up in a system that was very man-centered in its theology. And I was told things like this when I was growing up, that God was lonely and he needed to um, create Adam and Eve because God was just a lonely old man up in heaven and he needed people to satisfy him. And it was all about humans. It was all about people. And I distinctly remember coming to grips with God's grace. And there was a point in time where I uh, hit my knees in my study, in my office, and began to weep over what God had done in my heart to awaken me to these truths. But about two years before that, this song Thankful came out. And Don can attest to it. I hated this song. I didn't like it. I was vocal about not liking the song. When the song came on, I told her to turn it off. It was offensive to me. What do you mean we're dead in our sins? What do you mean I'm incapable of doing any good on my own? That goes against everything that I had grown up believing, that it was about me. And so I detested Cademan's call for singing this song thankful. But yet it's become one of my favorite songs. And it ministers to me and it speaks to me about what God has shown me about his grace. And so I come today with a little bit of vulnerability to share with you um, what God has done in my heart. And I'm often like Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon asked this question, and I think many of us have asked it many times, and that's this. Why am I saved? Why? And there have been times when I prayed to the Lord and I've thanked him because he very could have easily passed me over and left me in my sin. And who would be just in doing that? God does not owe me anything. God does not owe any of us anything. And for him to choose to save us is amazing grace. And it's a mystery to me why I'm saved. Because I know the depth of sin in my heart. I know where I am today. And if it were not for God's grace, if it were not for God's intervention, I don't know where I would be this morning. And so I am thankful that I'm incapable of doing any good on my own. And the only answer I've come up with is what the scripture says. It was God's good pleasure and will to do so, to save us. So in light of this song, Thankful, and in light of Thanksgiving, my message is fairly simple this morning. Seven reasons why I'm thankful this Thanksgiving. And I pray these are seven reasons why you're thankful this morning, too. And not so much related to the song, but we're going to be saturated this morning in the scriptures. 
I want us to look at a lot of passages of Scripture this morning. I want us, after we leave this place this morning, to be soaked with the Word so that when we leave, we will have experienced God's truth in our hearts. And I pray that today we would experience afresh God's Word for us and what He's done, what He's done in our lives. You know, Romans chapter 5, Paul gives a very interesting phrase. In chapter 5, verse 5, he says this. He says, Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you realize God's love has been poured into our hearts this morning? And that's what I want us to experience. I want us to experience God's love being poured into our hearts this morning through the Holy Spirit as we look at seven awe-inspiring reasons why I'm thankful. Uh, The words of this song, Thankful, kind of set the stage. Uh, they talk about no one being righteous, no one understanding. There's none that seek God. No, not one. I'm thankful that I'm incapable of doing any good on my own. We're all stillborn and dead in our transgressions. We're shackled up to the sin we hold so dear. So what part can I play in the work of redemption? I can't refuse. I cannot add a thing because I'm just like Lazarus and I can hear your voice and I stand and rub my eyes and walk to you because I have no choice. It's by grace I've been saved through faith that's not my own. It's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. I am thankful that I'm incapable of doing any good on my own. So with that being the backdrop, but more importantly and more vitally, the scriptures being our primary means of getting nourishment from, from God this morning, let me give you seven awe-inspiring reasons why I'm thankful. And I use the term awe-inspiring because I, I pray that after we get done with this message, you are inspired and stand in awe of a sovereign and mighty and powerful God who's done a great work in our lives. Number one, I am thankful that God sovereignly overcame my spiritual inability and depravity. He overcame it. Let me read to you the words of Paul in Romans 3, 10 through 18, straight from Scripture. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Does this hit you the way it hits me? There is none righteous. There's none that seeks after God. All of us are worthless, have come together as as those that have turned aside from God. There's no fear of God in our hearts. We're arrogant. We're rebellious. And you may be saying, well, Sean, I'm not that bad compared to my neighbor. I'm not that bad compared to a family member. You're being kind of extreme here to say that we're that depraved, that we're that sinful. Yes, we are. We are. You hear a lot about talking about seekers, the seeker sensitive church. Reaching seekers. Or you say this person over here is seeking after God. They're searching. And I would say maybe a person is seeking after the benefits of God. A person is seeking after fulfillment in their life. A person is seeking after a void to fill the hole in their life. But the scripture is very clear that no one seeks after God. So why am I thankful this morning? There's a true seeker. You know who's the most seeker sensitive person? Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate seeker. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. While I was disobedient, 
While I was separated, while I was sinful, while I was rebellious and arrogant, Christ took the initiative to chase after me. I don't know if that hits you this morning because I'm not worthy to be chased after. God was not getting a good thing when he decided to get Sean Cole on his team. As a matter of fact, I was lost and we've, learned, we've lost that term lost in our, in our culture today. We call it pre-Christian or unchurched or, or all these different metaphors, but lost. We're lost without Christ. We're blind. We're lost. Look at the scripture and the way it describes this. We've all turned aside. We've become worthless. No one does good. No one, not, not even one. No one's righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. But Christ came and rescued me from my lostness. And when I finally got honest with this text and let this text stand up as a mirror to me and look at who I was before I had a relationship with Christ, it brought me to my knees to realize that God and his grace would save a wretch like me. I think so often we sing that song, Amazing Grace, and just gloss over it because we've read it so many times and sung it so many times. Do you realize that God did not have to choose to save us, but he did while we were rebels against him? So I'm so thankful that God has overcome my sin. And has this happened to you? Has God overcome your sin? Number two, I am thankful that God miraculously made me alive in Christ. It was a miracle of the new birth. He made me alive in Christ. Let me read to you the words of Paul. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace You've been saved. This passage of Scripture is very clear. I was dead. I was a dead man. I was a spiritual corpse. I was a child of wrath. I was obedient to Satan. I was walking in the ways of my flesh, enslaved to all types of passions. I was a dead man walking, even as an eight-year-old child. And I'm thankful that this passage of Scripture says God is rich in mercy. Aren't you thankful God's rich in mercy? And because He's rich in mercy, He made me alive in Christ. Think about Ezekiel when he looked out over those dead, dry bones in that valley. He saw skeletons that could not live. They were dead. They were dry. They were rotten. They were brittle. But God did a work by breathing life into those bones and they came to life and they lived. And that's what God has done to all of us here who are believers. He's blown his life into us, has made us alive, has resurrected us, First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. We're new creatures in Christ. Are you thankful that you're a new creature? I don't want to be the old self that I was. I'm thankful God has raised me from the dead. And the metaphor is not of a person who's sick. The Bible doesn't say we're sick. The Bible says we're dead. It's not as if I'm sick and, and I need to reach out and grab the medicine to make me better. The Bible speaks of us as corpses in a morgue that need more than just a little medicine. We need a resurrection. And there's a famous painting. It's a Christian painting about people out on the sea and they're drowning in the ocean. And there's a boat with a person with a life preserver and they're throwing the life preserver out to save these people that are drowning. And it's a good picture of evangelism and what we're to do, but it falls short of the biblical picture. 
People are not drowning in the ocean, gasping for air. Scripture says they're dead at the bottom of the ocean. And only Christ can reach down and dive down and grab that dead person and bring them up on the shore and breathe new life into them and resurrect them and give them new birth. So my question for you this morning is this. Have that happened to you? Has Christ made you alive? Were you once a dead man, but Christ has made you alive? He's resurrected you. He's given you the new birth. Number three. I'm thankful that Christ victoriously obtained my eternal redemption through the cross. Victoriously obtained my eternal redemption through the cross. What does this mean? Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture in the entire Bible about what Christ has done in our place. He was set forward as a propitiation. Do you know what that means? It means to turn aside God's wrath. Christ stood in our place and absorbed and exhausted the full wrath of God that was poured towards us. And he absorbed it and deflected it and took it so that we would not have to. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Aren't you thankful that all your sins are canceled? Every single one of your sins is forgiven. It's nailed to the cross. If there was a sin that was not paid for, if there was a sin that, that was still out there hanging over our heads, we would be lost. But Christ has paid for all of our sins in his blood. Hebrews 9.12. He, speaking of Jesus, entered, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption once for all. A one-time sacrifice, Christ sacrificed himself once and for all, and he obtained an eternal redemption. What does the word redemption mean? Redemption is not necessarily a religious word. It's actually a word from the marketplace. It was a word to use to buy and sell. Oftentimes it meant to buy a slave out of slavery, and you'd make a payment to buy the slave out, and that payment was called the ransom price. And so the picture here is that Jesus Christ has paid with his blood our release from the shackles of sin that we hold so dear. And that scripture here in Hebrews says he obtained or he secured our eternal redemption. That's a strong word in the original language to mean that he made a strong purchase. Aren't you thankful that while you were dead in your trespasses, while you stood against Christ, while you were his enemy, while you were still a sinner, Christ purchased you with his very own blood. He bought you, paid in full. And it was victorious. When Christ was on the cross, did he say it has started? It is potential. It is theoretical. What does he say? It is finished, paid in full, tetelestai. Once and for all, the payment has been made. Charles Spurgeon has written a little tract, an extended tract called All of Grace. And I encourage all of you to go on Spurgeon.org. You can get it free. It was basically used to teach people about having a relationship with Christ. We, we, we'd use it today to give to people that were asking questions about, about Christ. And this is what he says about the cross in the way that only Spurgeon can say it. He says, my sole hope for heaven lies in the full atonement made upon Calvary's cross for the ungodly. On that I firmly rely. I have not the shadow of hope anywhere else. 
You are in the same condition as I am, for we neither of us have anything of our own worth as a ground of trust. Let us join hands and stand together at the foot of the cross and trust our souls once for all to him who shed his blood for the guilty. The cross. As we think about this Thanksgiving, I'm thankful that Jesus was a victor and he obtained my salvation on the cross by purchasing me with his very own blood. Number four, I'm thankful that the Father irresistibly drew me to Himself. That the Father irresistibly drew me to Himself. Now, what do you mean by this? Well, this is sprinkled all throughout the Scriptures, but we find in John 6 a teaching from the Lord Himself that's very interesting. John 6, 37, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Him. There's a coming to Christ. But then in John 6:44 we have a paradox. Jesus says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then later on in the same flow of thought in John 6:63 6, through 65, Jesus completes the the whole train of thought here with this statement. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Speaking of Judas, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. Do you notice what Jesus says? He says, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit who gives life. And the Father draws those to Himself. There's two words here. Draws and enables. No one can come unless the Father draws. No one can come unless the Father enables. Let's look at those two words for just a moment and see the power of what this means. That word draw shows up two other times in the New Testament. One time in Acts about dragging a net with a load of fish onto a boat. The other time it's used in James of talking about dragging someone into court. That word means to drag. It's not a wooing. R.C. Sproul says it this way. When you have water at the bottom of a well and you want the water to come up, you don't yell down to the water and say, water, water, water. Come on up, water. Oh, please come up, water. I know you want to come up, water. Come on up, water. No, you draw the water up with a pulley. Same thing God does. God draws us to himself. Now, we need to be very careful here. This is not coercive. This is not God bringing us, kicking and screaming against his will, against our will into heaven. This is not something that God does forcefully. God does this gently. But God is sovereign and he overcomes the resistance and he overcomes the deadness and he overcomes the lostness to draw us to himself. But he does it in a way that we gently and freely Come to Christ by His drawing us. The other word here is grant. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Some translations say enables. The Father must enable us. The Father must grant to us. The Father must give us the ability to come. Jesus says no one's able. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father does a sovereign work in drawing that person, in dragging that person, in bringing that person to a state of understanding their need for Christ. And then, you know what happens? Once the Father draws you, you freely come. You freely come to Christ. 
And so let me ask you a question this morning. Has the Father drawn you to see your need for Jesus? One of the things that happens when we draw, when God draws us, is that we repent of our sins and we trust. But do you realize the repenting of our sins and the very trusting is not something we produce in and of ourselves? Those are gifts themselves. Let me ask you a question. Does a baby cry to be born? Does the baby go, ah, to push itself out? No, what happens when the baby's pushed out? What's the first thing it does? Wah, it cries. So evidence of birth is crying. Evidence of spiritual birth is crying out to God. The new birth comes first, but the first thing that we're given as a gift is the ability to cry out to God. And that leads me to my fifth point. I'm thankful that God mercifully granted to me the gifts of repentance and faith. Yes, your coming to Christ was a gift. The faith that you exercised to come to Christ was a gift. The repentance that you exercised to turn from your sin and come to Christ was a gift that was given to you. That was purchased on the cross by Christ and given to you the moment that the Holy Spirit made you alive. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of details about the Greek here, but let me ask you a question. It is a gift of God. This is not of your own doing. What's the it? What's the this? Is it grace? Yes. Is it salvation? Yes. Is it faith? Yes. The totality of our salvation is a gift of God, even the faith that we exercise To trust in him. Now let me just ask you a question. If it depended upon us, we've looked so far this morning at being dead. Children of wrath. No one's able. No one can seek. No one can understand. We're altogether worthless. If somehow in our own power we could decide to come to Christ, number one, we never could because the Bible says we're dead. But number two, if we could do that, we would have something to boast about. And so we need to understand that God makes us alive. And part of making us alive is he grants to us the gifts of faith. He grants to us the gifts of repentance. We freely come to Christ. We're willing to come to Christ. We decide to come to Christ. But the only reason we decide to come to Christ is because God has done an initial act of opening our hearts to the gospel. We see this all throughout the scriptures. But let me give you two passages of scripture that speak to this. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In other words, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance as a gift to come to Christ. What about Lydia in Acts 16:14? One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Notice the order. It does not say Lydia opened her own heart. It says God opened her heart. And what did she do? She responded to the message. And that's what happens. God must open your heart. God must take the blinders off your eyes. God must blow new life into you. And one of the evidences that you're born is you come to Christ freely. That you trust Him for salvation. Now number six. This is very crucial. I'm thankful that the Father legally, legally, Declared me innocent in Christ and has given me new clothes. What do clothes have to do with anything I'm talking about this morning? Everything. We'll talk about clothes. Are you wearing the right clothes this morning? Did you come in wearing the right clothes? Did you wear your church clothes this morning? 
Romans 5, 1 through 2, Paul writes this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says we've been justified. What does it mean to be justified? Justification means we've been legally declared innocent in God's sight. Here's the problem. We have a boatload of sin in our life. Bankrupt. We need something to happen to our sin. And so in the, in the event of justification where we exercise our faith in Jesus, our sins are transferred. Our sins are credited to his account on the cross. He bears our sins and we're not, no longer accountable to those sins. Christ has paid in full our sins. So our sins have been credited to Christ. But his righteousness has been credited to us. And so we stand in the righteousness of Christ so that on the day of judgment, we stand not guilty before God because Christ has clothed us in his righteousness alone. We won't stand naked on that day. Many will stand naked on the day of judgment in their filthy rags or in their own righteousness, and they will not be dressed appropriately to enter into God's presence. Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah says, we've all become like one who's unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like a filthy rag. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now, think about the implication of this. Even the good things that we do. The religious things that we do are still filthy rags in God's sight. Even trying hard, being a good person is still considered a polluted garment. But in Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah the prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robes of righteousness. There's this whole metaphor all throughout the scripture of being clothed in white garments. Back in Zechariah, you don't necessarily have to turn there. It's right before Malachi. Let me read to you the first five verses of chapter 3. And let's look at this picture, this Old Testament picture of being clothed in white garments representing justification. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is a courtroom scene. Joshua the high priest is standing in the courtroom. He's standing in the temple and he's dressed in polluted garments. He's dressed inappropriately. And Satan, the prosecuting attorney, the word Satan means accuser. Satan is railing accusation against accusation to Joshua. He's unclean. He's unfit to be in your presence, God. He's mine. He's worthless. He's polluted. He's a sinner. Look at him, God. He's not fit to be in your presence. And accusation after accusation that Satan keeps leveling. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord does something very interesting. The angel of the Lord says, take off his dirty garments and put clean garments on him. And then the angel of the Lord does something that only Jesus Christ can do. And I believe the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ. He says, I will forgive your iniquities. So we have this picture of the old, dirty, filthy rags being removed and Christ clothing us with his righteousness so that we stand innocent on that day. Romans 8.1 says this. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that when Satan comes and hurls accusations against you, they will not stand because Christ has died in your place. He's your defendant. And, cry, and, and Satan can rebuke you and, and hurl insults at you, but you are not under condemnation. You stand not guilty. That's a great reason to praise and thank the Lord this morning. And number seven, I am thankful that God will absolutely complete the good work He started in me. That He will absolutely complete the good work that He started in me. There's that song that, we, that, that, that was sung, Thankful. It says, the road is long from the ground to glory. Meaning this, in this Christian life we have struggles, we have trials. How many of you have wanted to give up in the Christian life? It would be a whole lot easier to go back to the ways of the world than to follow Jesus. Acts says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We grow weary. We go tired. We want to get to that point where we're in heaven. But there's a long road between the moment we become a Christian and the moment we step into heaven. And we still have indwelling sin. And we still carry around the tribulations and the trials. And so we want to get to heaven fast. And so we grow weary. But God has made a promise to those who are his children. To those he's made alive. To those that he's credited his righteousness to. To those that he's breathed new life in. To those that he's overcome their sinfulness. God makes a promise. And the promise is this. In Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you. Will bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ. God will infallibly ensure. That we reach the finish line. That we make it. Now, there's a lot of verses that talk about this. I want to explore just a few of them. This one's not on your screen because it's kind of long. But Romans 8, 35 through 39, let me just read this to you and listen to the powerful words from Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I hope you're here this morning and you are thankful that nothing can separate you from God's love. And Paul gives pretty much everything, even hypothetical situations. What about Jesus? What does Jesus say about this? John 10, 26-30. Jesus says, But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you realize that we're in two double grips here? Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you're in Jesus' hand, you're in the Father's hand, because He and the Father are one, and it says no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. The chief shepherd of our souls, Jesus Christ, holds us firmly in His grip on that day. Now, 1 Peter 1, 3-5 is probably the strongest statement about this whole issue first peter what does peter say about it? we've seen paul we've seen jesus what does peter say blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of god through faith 
for a salvation ready to be received in the last time. How many of you have been driven late at night? Your kids are cranky. You and your wife have been fighting. And you finally reach the hotel. And you walk into the hotel clerk and you give them your name. And they say, I'm sorry, Mr. Cole, we lost your reservation. Well, I left my credit card. We don't have a record of your credit card authorization. We lost your reservation. And as a matter of fact, we're booked. We don't have any other rooms. You're going to have to go find some place to stay. This happened to Don and me sort of one time. We were backpacking um, over on the Wolf Creek Pass area. And the weather started getting bad. And so we decided to come back and um, head back to Colorado Springs because we just didn't want to backpack in the weather. And we stopped in Alamosa. And there was some type of softball tournament or something going on. And every single room and Alamosa was booked. And it was about 11 o'clock at night. We didn't have time to drive back to Colorado Springs. So needless to say, we found a roach motel on the outskirts of town, and it was pretty scary. But let me give you news this morning. God will never lose your reservation. God will never say, lost the credit authorization, because the credit has already been credited to Christ, and His righteousness has been credited to you. You're reserved. It's reserved for you. Now, it's interesting, that word reserved... It's a strong tense. It's the perfect tense. It means that inheritance that cannot spoil, cannot fade, that that undefiled inheritance, our eternal life, is reserved, perfect tense. It's a permanent reservation. God is protecting us so that on that day, we will have a reservation waiting us in heaven. And God is the one that does it. What about Jude? What does Jude say? Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of of His glory, blameless, with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Notice what it says. God is able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to present you blameless on that day, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God will ensure that you don't stumble, that you make it to the finish line. What about 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is faithful. What will he surely do? He will surely ensure that at the day that Christ comes back, you will be clothed in his righteousness, blameless, and you will have your reservation waiting for you in heaven. What about first Corinthians one, eight through nine? Talking about Jesus, who will sustain you. Sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of His Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It says that Christ will sustain you to the end. That word sustain in the original language means this. It means unshakable, durable, certain, reliable. It was often used of legal terms of a guarantee. In other words, based upon God's solid guarantee, legally binding by His sovereignty and by the fact that His righteousness through His Son has been credited to you, He will ensure an unshakably final destination for those who are in Christ, blameless to the end. And so when we come to this Thanksgiving and we think about these truths of what God has done in our lives, how He's made us alive, how He's credited His righteousness to us, how Christ has died on the cross, all these things are very precious to those of us who've trusted Christ for salvation. And there may be many here today who are not so passionate about these things, There may be many here today who maybe you just walked in here this morning. Maybe you come to church. 
Maybe you were baptized as a child. Maybe you consider yourself a good person. But you know, deep down in your heart, that you've never been made alive. You know, deep down in your heart, you've never experienced this transformation. You know, deep down in your heart, that on that day of judgment, you will stand naked before Almighty God because Christ's righteousness has not been credited to you. You will stand before God not being transformed. And many of you in this room may not have ever experienced the life-changing transformation of the new birth. And you've never been transformed from the inside out. You've never had the experience where God has come and saved you. And He's come and He's done a work in your life. Let me close with a parable from Jesus. A story in Matthew 22, 1-13. Jesus gave them a parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's about a king that that went out and he was going to have a wedding feast. And I want you to go out, servants, and invite people to the wedding feast. And so the servants go out and they start inviting people to the wedding feast, but people turn down the invitation. They give excuses and then they go out again, and this time they're actually even killed. And so the king says, okay, I want you to go out to the highways and the byways and to the cities, and I want you to invite everybody you see, both good and bad, to come to the wedding feast. Now this parable talks about... God, the Father, there's going to be a day of the wedding feast where we will enter heaven and be part of God's family. But there's something that's very interesting that happens in this parable. Starting in verse 10. And those stewards, or those servants, went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand the poignancy of this, par- uh, this parable? There will be many that will try to stand on that day of judgment and they will have the wrong clothes. They will be standing in the clothes of filthy garments. They will be standing in the clothes of their own righteousness. In reality, they will stand naked before Almighty God. They won't have the right wedding clothes to get in. And the picture is of hell. They will be cast out into outer darkness. And so there's a warning for all of us to be clothed for that day when Christ comes back so we can have intimate fellowship with Him. And you may be asking the question this morning, well, how do I get clothed? Do I go to JCPenney's or Walmart and get the right clothes? Do I go to Walmart and rent a tux? How do I get the right wedding clothes? Well, the thing you don't do is you don't fashion your own clothes. You don't make your own clothes. You rely upon the one who can clothe you. And here's simply what you do. Cry out to Jesus. You say, Jesus, clothe me. Jesus, make me new. Jesus, I ask that you give me a new heart. Jesus, I ask that you make me alive. Jesus, I ask that you save me. Jesus, I understand that I'm lost and I'm desperate and I am, and I'm hell bound without you and there's no hope without your love, without your intervention, without your cross, without your resurrection. Jesus, I cast myself at your most mercy alone and I ask you, Jesus, to please come and do a work in my heart. I cry out to you, Lord. I'm a sinner. Please save me. You know what the promise from scripture is? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a great promise. If you're here this morning and you're a bad person, I've got great news for you. Jesus saves bad people. If you're here this morning and you're a sinner, 
which the scripture very clearly teaches, I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ loves to save sinners. If you're a good person and you think you've got it all together, that's the person that has to worry. Because Christ came to seek and save the lost. And all of us in this room know at one point we were lost. We were dead. We were depraved. We were separated. We were entrenched in our sins that we held so dear. We were shackled, enslaved. And God did a work to make us alive. So on this Thanksgiving, I'm asking us to do some things. And it may sound like I'm stuttering, and maybe I am. Let's all rejoice in the awe-inspiring grace. Let's rejoice. Let this be a, a, a time of rejoicing. And I'm not talking about cheerleader rah-rah. I'm talking about deep down in the soul of your being, you gladly rejoice in grace. God giving you what you do not deserve and God withholding what you do deserve. Let's rejoice in the awe-inspiring grace of an awe-inspiring Savior. It's all about Jesus. He's awe-inspiring. Have you seen the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient Savior of your soul this morning? His grace is awe-inspiring. He's awe-inspiring. And He's done an awe-inspiring work. All these things that He's done in our hearts. An awe-inspiring work. So we want to rejoice in the awe-inspiring grace of an awe-inspiring Savior who's done an awe-inspiring grace. Why has He done all this? To the glory of an awe-inspiring, sovereign God. It's for His glory. Christ does not save us to make much of us. He saves us to make much of Him. And we are most satisfied in Him when we glorify Him. When He's glorified in us. So this Thanksgiving, may we truly be thankful that we are incapable of doing any good on our own. Let's pray. Fathers, we think about Thanksgiving. And we think about your cross and we think about your resurrection and we think about all the things that you've done. We're amazed that you would choose to do them for us, sinners. And you tell us in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, you died for us. Nothing moved you to do that, Jesus. You were not obligated. You were not bound to save us. You simply did it because it was your good pleasure and will to do so. And so we're so, so thankful of your salvation. We're thankful that as dead people, you've made us alive. <coughs> We're thankful that you've drawn us to, your, to the Father. We're thankful that you've legally declared us innocent. We're thankful that you've granted us new clothes fit for heaven. We're thankful that Jesus on the cross, you obtained our redemption. And we're thankful that you're going to complete the work you started in us. Reserve us. Our reservation is kept in heaven. <coughs> and for many of us in this room, Father, we've experienced these great truths. But Lord, I'm afraid... There may be those in this room who have never had the life-changing transformation relationship with Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that today would be their day of salvation. That today you would do a work in their hearts to make them alive. That they would call out to you in desperation. They would cast themselves on your mercy alone. That they would see the beauty of the cross and the beauty of the resurrection. And today would be the day where they see Jesus and they say, Yes, Lord, I come to you. I give my life to you. I worship you. I fall before you. You are my Lord and Savior. Today, I give myself to you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that that happens. Lord, there's so many things we can be thankful for this Thanksgiving. We're thankful for our health. We're thankful for our family. We're thankful for homes and, and jobs and, and all the material blessings you've thanked us with, Lord. But help us to remember, Lord, you could take all that away. 
And all we'd have left would be you, and that would be enough. Our salvation is enough. But we're so thankful that you give us all good things. May we truly be thankful this Thanksgiving. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.